Well, good morning. We are in First, Second Samuel, chapter seventeen. If you have Bibles, open up to Second Samuel, chapter seventeen. There are Bibles in the back. If you need to grab one, just go right ahead and grab a Bible. We're in chapter seventeen, twenty-four chapters. You do the math. We'll be done by the end of March, uh, and then we will be launching into our study, another book study, which we love to do here. And uh, we'll be going through the book of Galatians, a very important book, especially for the Reformers. Uh, We'll be looking at some historical stuff when it comes to the Reformation as well as we study that book together. So be reading, studying, and and looking at Galatians, and then we'll start in April, um, right before Easter, on on the book of Galatians. Now, let me me just bring everybody up to speed. I want to do so in a way, because there are a lot of names, there are a lot of characters, and a lot of moving parts in this portion of Holy Scripture. It can be a little confusing, especially when the, the names of the characters in the Bible isn't Jim and Bob and John. It's, you know, Hephaestus and Hushite, you know. And that's a little bit, it gets a little bit confusing. So, let me, just, let me just rehearse because it's very important you understand the context we get into chapter 17. As you know, David's the king of Israel. He's in Jerusalem. Uh, when all the kings went out to battle, he stayed home. You remember the story. He's on the rooftop. He sees a beautiful woman on his rooftop. He gets her. He brings her into his, into his home, commits adultery with her. Her name is Bathsheba. She gets pregnant. So therefore, he, what does he do? He lives, cheats, and steals, and, and kills Uriah, her husband. Nathan confronts King David about his sin, and David repents. God forgives him. Beautiful story of repentance and forgiveness. But God also tells Nathan, speak to David these words. The sword shall never depart from your house, David. Your sins are forgiven, but there are consequences. The sword will not depart from your house. You have despised me. You have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. You committed adultery. Thus says the Lord, I I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. David, that's the consequences to your sin. I'm rising up evil against you in your own house. I will take your wives, your ladies, before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives. You have sex with your women in the sight of the sun, out in the open. And because you did this, you scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. And from chapters 12 onward, we're witnessing this fulfillment of God's word. And I know it's, you know, it's not all that fun, But it is a fulfillment of the word of God. And you can take rest in that actually. Okay. First David's son by Bathsheba dies. We know that. And then David's other son. Here's where the tricky stuff comes in. His name is Abnon. Abnon has a fantasy and rapes his sister Tamar. Half sister Tamar. And Abnon rapes Tamar. And Absalom, very important. Absalom, who's Tamar's brother and Abnon's half brother. All children of David murders his brother. Absalom murders Abnon for raping their sister Tamar. David finds out, he gets angry, does nothing. Justice is non-existent. So Absalom, who killed Abnon for raping Tamar, flees from Jerusalem, goes to Gesher, and that's where he's hanging out for a couple of years. He's got family there, his mother's there, his grandfather's there. He stays there for three years. Then Joab, who is David's right-hand military man, tells a woman to tell a story. We won't get into it all. She tells a story to David and convinces David to bring back Absalom, Amnon's brother, the one who killed Amnon for raping Tamar, to go 
from Geshur, where he's hiding out, back to Jerusalem. So Absalom comes back to Jerusalem after three years and stays two more years in Jerusalem. That's five years away from Jerusalem, seven years since the rape and murder of Amnon. He's in Jerusalem. David doesn't want to see him for two years. And then finally, Absalom, David's not happy with the whole situation, but he still he does nothing. Absalom comes into the presence of the king after all these years, and it's, a, and it's an ugly meeting. There's no, there's no repentance. There's, there, there's not much going on. It's very cold. Uh, there's obviously some distance between King David and his son Absalom for killing Amnon, who raped Tamar. Okay? But Absalom's at least he's back in Jerusalem. He's back in the presence of the Father. Like I said, it was cold. It was disingenuous, unrepentive. But Absalom, we learn in chapter 15, takes that and starts kicking in his plan, his conspiracy. Absalom continues to want to be king. And we found out in chapter 15, he gathers on his chariot. He's running through the streets. The, verse, the chapter tells us that he's got this long, flowing, beautiful hair, muscular body, handsome guy. And he's riding through the city, parading himself around. He's full of himself. He's all about him. He gets up in the morning. He goes to the gate. He convinces people, you know what? Nobody really here cares about you. But if I was judge, oh, I would, I would take care of all your needs. And chapter 15, verse 6, makes something very clear. It says, at this, at this point, Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. See what's happening. Absalom, David's son, is winning over the people of Israel. Absalom deceives his father. I got to go to the city called Hebron to fill a vow. Meanwhile, he's got it all set up. He's going to be announced king in Hebron. And while Absalom goes to fulfill this vow, which I think is a whole lie, and he's crowned king in Hebron, we find out in chapter 15, very important, that there's a man there by the name of Ahithophel. Ahithophel. Ahithophel was a statesman. He was, the, he was uh, a counsel. He was part of the, what we would call, um, uh, David trusted counselor. He was on his cabinet. He was an advisor. Ahithophel was David's right-hand man and a counselor and advisor to David. It turns out that he went to the other side. And Ahithophel no longer is a trusted counsel of David, but he runs, Ahithophel runs, and joins forces with Absalom. So Absalom has this now the counsel of David working with him. Ahithophel and Absalom have joined at the hip to try to destroy David and his kingdom. And again, the text tells us when all this came to be that the conspiracy of Absalom and Ahithophel grew stronger. And the people with Absalom kept increasing. You see what's going on. Absalom is growing in, in favor with the people. And as all this is going on, Ahithophel's with Absalom. They're, they're in Hebron. Their conspiracy is growing. They head back to Jerusalem. David finds out and he's like, we got to get out of here. Absalom's coming back. Ahithophel is, is, it was my trusted counselor. Now he's turncoat. He's a traitor. We, we got to get out of here. And he leaves. And as he's leaving, they say Hiphathel is a traitor and, and David and is important. David prays. Chapter 15, verse 31. O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel, the turncoat, the traitor to the kingdom, into foolishness. I know he's working for Absalom, my son, who wants to be dead. He's coming back to Jerusalem. He's with Ahithophel. David cries out, make his counsel be foolish. 
I mean, God, be, God begins to answer that prayer by another guy. His name is Hushai, the archite. David tells him, listen, as he's fleeing Jerusalem, listen, don't come with me. Go back to the city, Hushai. Hushai, I want you to go back. I know you're loyal to me, but I want you to go back to the city, and I want you to be a, a spy for me. In fact, there's priests there that, are, 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 that got my back too, Zodiac and, and, and uh, another priest. So you go back, and, and I want you to Zodak and Abiathar. You go back, Hushai, and, and play a double agent. Go back to the city. And chapter 15 concludes with this. So Hushai, he's the double agent working for David. It says, Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom and Ahithophel were going into Jerusalem. So they're all coming to Jerusalem together. You've got to picture that. Okay, I want you to see that. It's very important. Last week, Pastor Ricky did a great job, ran into a guy named Zeba, who provided some food for him, uh, ran into a guy named Shemai, who's cursing him out, or cursing least down on him, and, and, and David is in camp now, he's in the west side of the River Jordan, east of Jerusalem, there, there, there are a lot of um, caves in that area, we'll see that comes to play in a minute. Meanwhile, and it's very important, we're almost done, at least with the introduction, meanwhile, I want you to see this. In Jeru- David's on, we're going to show you, he's on the west side, east side of, of the Jordan. In Jerusalem right now, Absalom, David's son, who's full of himself, prideful man, self-proclaimed king, wants David out, take his father out. He's got Ahithophel, who used to be on David's side, now he's on his side, counseling him in Jerusalem. David is fleed, but David sends in Hushai, double agent, keep an eye out, and Zodak and, and Abiathar is the priest. They're in Jerusalem as well. And they're all looking out for David. Hushai, the priest, looking out for David. Ahithophel is with Absalom looking out for themselves. Following that? Okay, very important. Because as we get into this, you're going to see the counsel of Ahithophel and the counsel of Hushai come to pass in chapter 17. Now, we also remember Ahithophel is the grandfather of Bathsheba. Ricky mentioned, well, Ricky read to you last week in the text that Hephethel's uh, first counsel to Absalom was take the concubines that he left. David left 10 concubines. Take them, put them on the rooftop and have sex with them in front of everybody. It's a fulfillment of scripture. But don't think for a moment Hephethel and, and Absalom were not getting some revenge toward David. It was a fulfillment of scripture, but for sure it was on the rooftop. Don't tell me that Ahithophel don't remember his granddaughter who was violated because David was on the rooftop. That's exactly what's going on. Although it was a fulfillment of Scripture. Pastor Ricky said last week, and I quote, However, the difference at play here is that the one seizing the throne is the king's son. It's Absalom. Remember, he would go in and violate the concubines just showing his power and disdain for the, for, for the kingdom. That's what, that's what kings did when they took over other monarchies. However, the difference at play here is that the one seizing the throne is the king's son. Such an act of this is only rotten, perverse. It's not only, it is rotten, perverse, and crude. End quote. It's revenge. That's bad counsel. Ahithophel tells him, listen, Absalom, just take the ten concubines. It's disgusting. Absalom, listen, wants power over God's people. He wants to rule God's people, but he has no regard for the God of God's people. As we pick up this narrative, remember, Absalom's pride is thirst for power. David's prayer, Father, 
God, please turn Ahithophel's counsel, the turncoat, the traitor, who's now with Absalom, turn his counsel to nothing. Remember, Hishai was sent, listen, you're loyal to me, David says. You go into the city, be my double agent, Hushai. Zodak's there, Abiath there, their children are there. They're on my side. And he sends them into the city. So that's what's going on. You need to see that this morning. Because now we're going to see the counsel of these two men. Abiathar, the traitor to David, and Hushai, the double agent. Get that squarely in your head, okay? The calculated counsel by both men, chapter 17. The cunning conduct, the way God works all things out. And then finally, the catered cuisine, because they have a feast. I titled this, The Unseen Hand of God. And you're going to see throughout this text, God is working. You may say, what a mess. Yes. Also say, because I'm a mess. Welcome to the human race. The calculated counsel, verse 1. Moreover, or New American Standards, furthermore. Remember, Hephthel said, hey, Absalom, go sleep with the concubine. Show the world disdain toward your father. Now, he says, Hephthel says, the second counsel. Look what he says. Let me, Ahithophel, the traitor to David, is now with Absalom. Let me, he says, choose 12,000 men and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic. And all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down only the king and I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. Some of you don't have that little verse in your Bible. Because some are using the Septuagint, some are using the Masoretic text, the Hebrew. Don't worry about it, it's not important. You seek the life of only one man, and all the people will be at peace. And the advice seemed right. Look, Ahithophel's advice, his counsel seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. Now, if you notice, this counsel is thought out, it's very thorough, very thought out. David's on the run, David, David seems to be in, in a disarray. And while David does not have all his ducks in a row, uh, it would be good to take him out. That's what Hiphathel is saying. While he's down and out, kick him while he's down. In fact, look what he says. He says that he himself, Hiphathel tells Absalom, a self-appointed king, he himself will gather 12,000 men and take David out. He also says, look, no one else needs to die. I will, he says, I'll complete this mission, Absalom. I will march into the city. I will take out David with all the people, and I will bring everybody back. Do you see how selfish, or at least self-centered that is? And when I take everybody out, the whole nation, when I take David out, the whole nation will be at peace. And what Ahithophel is telling Absalom is take, take advantage of David on the run. Take advantage of David's weariness, his despondency. He, he's the enemy, he's on the run, let's go get him. An attack right about now is, is good. We have a superior force. David is, is in disarray. And we attack, everyone will flee. And quite honestly, from a military perspective, it's a good plan. David is on the run. It's measured. It's meticulous. Its goal was to secure Absalom as king, to bring peace to the nation. Ahithophel had it all worked out, very calculated. It seemed not only right to Absalom, it seemed right to all the elders, it says. Interesting, it was Ahithophel who said, just take out the king. Just one man needs to die, and the nation will be at peace. It was Caiaphas, 
in the New Testament, the high priest, who said, do you understand that it's better for that one man should die for the people, not the whole nation should perish? In fact, the apostle John writes that Caiaphas rightly prophesied as the high priest, that Jesus would die for the nation, not only for the nation, but he'd gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans, the religious leaders in Jesus' day made plans to put Jesus to death. Just like in Jesus' day, God may not be immediately evident, but he's always present. The entire chapter of chapter 17 is all about the sovereign plan and the purpose of God in the midst of human decisions, choices, responsibilities, the unseen hand of God at work. David, the anointed of God, God made promises. He's the anointed of God. The promises that God made will not be thwarted. The sovereignty of God includes, listen, not only includes the working in, but the working through, working in, the working through, the foolishness of man. And that's exactly what's going on here. The plan of Hiphathel for all practical purposes, militarily, is a good one. Yet, what happens in verse 5? Absalom's like, that's a really good plan. You know what? Let's bring in Hushai. Now, he had already questioned Hushai early in chapter 16, Pastor Ricky pointed out. Wasn't really sure Guys on my side, maybe, maybe not. But now all of a sudden, he goes, let's, let's, let's see what Hushai's got to say. Verse 5. Absalom called Hushai the archite also. Let us hear what he has to say. And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom said to him, Thus has Ahithophel spoken. He gave him some part of the story. Shall we do it? If not, tell us. Verse 7. Hushai said to Absalom, This time, the counsel that Hiphathel has given is not good. Remember? It's like hearing the word of God. We learned that last week. It's like, Hiphathel is the man. This time, eh, not very good. Hushai says, you know, your father and his mighty men, and his men are mighty men, and that they are enraged, like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Besides, your father's an expert at war. He'll not spend the night with the people. Verse 9, behold, even now he has hidden himself in one of the pits. Remember, that's where he's at. There's a lot of caves there. Uh, or some other place. As soon as some of the people fall at the first attack, whoever hears it will say, there's been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. Then even the valiant men, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, would utterly melt with fear. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man and that those who are with him are valiant men. Remember David's prayer. Oh, Lord, please turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. Remember also, Hushai's back there. He's in Jerusalem. He, he's, he's, he's for David. He's there to, to defeat the council. That was his prayer. That was his answer to his prayer. That's why Absalom, by his own choice, by his own action, is yet still under the sovereignty of God. And he asked Hushai, the archetype, what he thinks. What do you think? He's like, it's, it's, a, it's a flawed plan. David's not going to be out in the open. Are you kidding me? He's, he's, he's going to be hiding. They're not weary. They're angry. You're not going to find them sleeping. So you're going to find the men ready for war. They're ready for your attack. 
And then you know what? You're going to send men out there. Some are going to fall right away and everyone's going to lose heart. And you, Absalom, he says, Hushai says to him, will be defeated. Hmm. But here's my counsel. Gather all Israel from Bathsheba by the sand of the sea, from Dan to Bathsheba, from the sand of the sea to the multitude, and that you go to battle in person. From Bathsheba, and you go. Look, look at the difference. You go to battle in person. So we, you included, shall come upon him in some place where he is to be found, and we shall light, up, light him up as the dew falls on the ground. It'll be quick. And of him and all the men with him, not one will be left. You need to do this. You need to gather. Not one will be left. If we go to the city, don't worry about it. We'll get some ropes. We'll drag the city into the valley. Not a pebble will be found. 14a. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, Ah, this council of Hushai, the archite, double agent, is better than the council of Ahithophel. Do you see what Hushai is doing? He's using, first of all, he uses many, many, many more words. His plan is, is a lot more busy, right? But he's provoking. He is, he is leaning into Absalom's self-centeredness. He, he's appealing to Absalom's pride. Absalom's counsel, excuse me, Ahithophel's counsel to Absalom was straightforward. Hushai's counsel has is, is got deception written all over it. Hushai's speech was designed to, to, to distract Absalom from listening to Ahithophel's plan. He contradicted everything that the turncoat, the traitor to David Ahithophel had said. Woodhouse in his commentary writes this, Hushai's speech did not use facts but played on Absalom's fears which was stirred up and his pride which was stroked and the power of language to manipulate the imagination. His purpose was to take Ahithophel's plan Make it no longer seem right, but rather not good. Hushai used the power of language to deceive, end quote. Do you see what's going on? You, Absalom, you lead the people. We already know he has long, flowing, gorgeous hair. You'll be out in front of the crowd. You'll have not 12,000. You'll have thousands from Dan to Beersheba, thousand of thousand hair waving in the wind. You can see how beautiful this is going to be as you go into this battle. Now listen to that guy, Ahithophel, 12,000 men. He does it himself. You need to go. He's weak. It's too small. And don't worry. If he goes into the city, we'll destroy them too. Not one person needs to be left. You need to do this. You could do this. You're handsome enough. <laughs> much, much more effective. Don't listen to that guy. And all this counsel really is just, you could, I mean, you, just for a minute, you could think of Absalom. Right, long flowing hair, muscular, thinks he's all that, listening to this plan. You can see his chest getting bigger, like, oh, I like this. An army that nobody can count, waving hair on the horse, like, this is good. He's tapping into his self-pride, his selfish pride, his his self-absorption. And let me tell you something, family, it's all part of the sovereignty of God. How do I know that? Read the rest of the verse. For the Lord has ordained, for the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. 
put that verse in your theological box that needs to grow. Ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. The Lord was acting in judgment on Absalom. The, the narrator is telling us this story, and what he does is he just rolls back the curtain, right? Rolls back the curtain on human experience, on, on the human events, and all that's going on. He, and he wants us to see from an eternal perspective, an eternal reality, the whole story that God has ordained this. One of many, 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 many stories in the Bible of the sovereignty of God, his right to reign and to rule all things according to his holy purposes, that is absolute, nothing occurs outside his sovereignty, and human responsibility, that human beings are fully accountable to God for what they do. And, and what Absalom has done was done from eternity, the Lord's doing, yet at the same time, Absalom was fully responsible and the Lord dealt with him accordingly. And I've said this before and I'm going to say it again. The only way you can grasp that clear biblical truth concerning the character of God, God is sovereign, we are responsible. If you have a category in your brain, something that will never be reconciled because you're not God, that man is responsible and God is sovereign. Any attempt to reduce the sovereignty of God, I'm going off on a little rabbit trail, but I need to, with some sort of nonsense like open theism, it talks about God knows all the possibilities of the future until they are done, paganism, or somehow we can undermine his sovereignty by our own free will, there's no such thing, or create your own reality by your own words is simply not biblical. If free will literally was true, I'd be 6'3 right now. I'm just saying, I'd probably get in a lot more trouble with my attitude, but I'm just saying, if I could make myself 6'3", I would do so. Or any attempt to reduce our responsibilities, God made me do this, Satan made me do this, or, you know, we're just simply robots. Listen, God is sovereign, man is responsible. Put that in your brain. Two tracks run alongside each other throughout all of Scripture and all of history. And the facts that our minds cannot understand is not the point. It is sufficient for us to know that it is so and that it is good that it is so. Ahithophel's plans seem right, but certainly not right in a moral sense. What Ahithophel wanted to do was to destroy the kingdom, destroy David. It may seem right militarily, but it wasn't morally right. But Absalom's mission was to destroy David. The problem that Absalom is facing is he is going against the Lord's anointed. That's why Hishai advice prevailed. The Lord, listen, the Lord answered David's prayer, not by actually making Ahithophel's advice foolish, but by making it appear foolish to Absalom through the words of Hushai. You can see the, you can see the way God is working that out. And here's the takeaway as we move on. It's the longest point. But here's a takeaway. Listen, there's no plan B in the sovereignty of God. But as our, if you're a child of God through the gospel, through Jesus Christ, it's important that we don't seek our own kingdoms, our own, plan, our own agendas, our own plans, but the plans and purposes of God. And at times we go astray, let's be honest. We can be assured, though, that God will lovingly lead his children back to himself by his sovereignty, 
And his providence is the working out of his sovereignty. Circumstances, that's what we see happening here. Now, I have a signature on my email. If you got an email from me recently, uh, it used to be Tim Keller. I changed it recently. I just like to throw quotes up there from time to time. And I got a quote by none other than John Piper. I'm waiting for Bill to say Piper. And here's my quote. I love it. It says this. John Piper says this. I rejoice. I'm full of joy in the sovereignty of God. The working out of God in all things. I rejoice in the sovereignty of God because he, God, wields it in all things to preserve himself as my greatest treasure. I rejoice in the sovereignty of God because he, God, wields it in all things to preserve himself as my greatest treasure. God is working in David's life to David to come to an end of himself. He's, he's, he's disciplining. He's, he's bearing the consequence on David so that, not that David's not, is going to be rejected. He's not going to be. But that David's going to learn and grow, even in the midst of conflict and suffering, that God is his greatest treasure. The Lord raised up David. The Lord put David on his throne. The Lord used Absalom's fear and ego and discouragement to his own advantage for his kingdom and for his children. Know that this morning. Know that this morning. You may be in the midst of something very hard and very arduous. If you're a child of God, listen. God is preserving for himself. God is preserving you so that he remains your greatest treasure. And the purpose of that ultimately will be not only for his glory, but your joy, but for your joy. Calculated counsel, the cunning conduct, verse 15. Hushai said to Zodak and Abiathar, the priest. Remember, they're in the city too. They're, they're working for David. Thus, and so did Hiphathel's counsel, Absalom and the elders of Israel. And thus, and so have counsel. In other words, I, we've heard, Absalom has heard both sides. Hushai, the double agent, and Hiphathel, the turncoat, the traitor. Verse 16. Now, therefore, send quickly. He tells the priest, tell David, don't stay at the fear of the fords of the wilderness, but by all means pass over, lest the king and all the people who are with him be swallowed up. Remember, chapter 15, David sent the priest, Zodak and Abithar, to Jerusalem with their sons to be the ears and eyes in the city. I'm going to wait. You let me know, he tells them. David tells Hushai, go back in. And remember, there's these priests. And we see this story in chapter 15 this working of david in chapter 15 come to fruition here in chapter 17 hushai must have walked away from hearing absalom say let's do hushai let let's 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 wait but hushai walked away from that council with absalom must have been thinking you know i don't know Absalom might, might, might hear what I say and wait, but Absalom might have been lying. Maybe he will change his mind and he'll go at Hushai and go after David right away. I don't really know, but like any double agent, I'm not taking any chances. Just in case, just in case Absalom listens to Ahithophel and goes after David right away rather than wait. What Hushai says to wait, gather the army, remember? So go tell David. Just, just tell him to move on. Don't wait. Well, I'm not really sure, but I don't want nothing to happen to the Lord's anointed. And go and tell them. 
Go and tell David, tip him off, get him moving, get him over the other side of, on the east side of the Jordan and, 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 and let him know what's going on, right? That's exactly what's happening. Verse 17. So Jonathan Ahimeaz, he's, they're the children of the priest. The priests tell their kids, the two sons. They're at where? At En Rogel. They're the sons. They're the ones that were there. A female servant was to go and tell them, and they were to go and tell King David. So the priest tells the young female servant, go tell my sons what's going on, and my sons will go and tell David. That's the plan. That's the plan. But, verse 18, a young man saw them and told Absalom. So both of them went quickly, the two sons went quickly, and came to the house of a man of Behurim, who had a well in his courtyard, and they went down into it. Verse 19, and the women took and spread a covering over the well's mouth and scattered grain on it, and nothing was known of it. So like many other covert operations, uh, you run into some problems. Maybe Absalom had his own spies, but these two boys are found out. The boys uh, uh, were found out that, you know, something's going on. They were spotted. Maybe, maybe it was strange for the priest's son to be at that place. I don't know. Maybe Absalom had his own spies. I don't know, but, but things went bad. And, 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 and Rogel is only about 300, I, from what I understand, about 300 yards. It's a city, it's a place, excuse me, that has a well there. So the female servant probably is going to get water as she would do normally. Hey, listen, go tell my sons. Why are you going to get water? Tell my sons what's going on. They can go tell David. And that, that's what's going on. And suddenly now, we're not sure what's going to happen. Uh, you know, it's like, da 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 And these men are, are running for their life, not running to David. And they run into a guy in Beirut. Who has, who has a well. If you remember, Barun was the place where he got cursed out or cursed down on. And his wife was like, you better get in there. People are coming after you. And they go into this well and they cover it. And they're hiding. And what does the lady do? What does the lady do when the men sent from Absalom to find these priest sons who are about to tip off David, who are working for David, what does she do? Look at the verse 20. When Absalom's servant came to the woman at the house, they said, where are uh, Hemias and Jonathan? The woman said to them, they went that way. You're looking for Hemias and Jonathan? Yeah, they went that way, over the brook. They couldn't find them and went back to Jerusalem. And once again, we have a bold-faced lie. I, I love the way some commentators, well, you know, went over the brook. It could mean the water that's in the well. She lied. It's okay. <laughs> she lied. They went that way. We've seen this before, didn't we? Michael, uh, David's wife, lied to the messengers. Her father, King Saul, wanted to kill David, and she's like, uh, yeah, we put a dummy in the bed. That was deceptive. We saw it again in 1 Samuel 20. Jonathan, David's son. Jonathan was, made a covenant with David. Saul wanted him dead. Went to Jonathan. What did Jonathan do? He lied. He lied to protect David. It appears that all these deceptions, including the one in our narratives, were employed to save innocent human life. Just like Rahab in the book of Hebrews talks about, actually it happened in Joshua 2, but she's a woman of faith. So the question is, is it ever appropriate and necessary when confronted with this kind of, of web of ethical dilemma to choose the least undesirable alternative, which is lying? I'll let you all fight it out in community group about that question, okay? But just respect each other's opinions. But the reformers used to call it the lie of necessity. Human life is, uh, is at stake here. 
Right now, she lied. David escapes. He, he gets to where he needs to go. Ralph Davis writes this. This story, or this, this contains a little episode of Yahweh's providence, the working out of his sovereignty. Yahweh's providence, a small story about how God is for his servant, in this case, David. Sovereignty is hidden, but providence brings sovereignty out where we can get a glimpse of it. We see the working of God. Verse 21. And they had gone, the men up from the well, like, all right, we're clearing the clear. And they ran and told David, Arise, go quickly over the water, for thus and so as if they'll counsel against you. No surprise there. David arose and all the people were with him, and they crossed the Jordan by daybreak. Not one was left. Everyone crossed the Jordan. Verse 23. Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed. He saddled his donkey and went off home to his own city. He set his house in order and hanged himself. And he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. Obviously, the men found out from the servant girl, climbed up out of the well, told David to keep moving. And then all of a sudden, this, this narrator just puts in this little blip, this obituary of Ahithophel. It says that he hung himself because the counsel, his counsel was not followed. And it seems at first sight like, you know, so they didn't listen to you? So, you, you know, you, you got that kind of identity issue, so you just go and hang yourself? I don't think that's what the case is. He's a, he's a meticulous, calculated man. He went home and, and put himself you know, went home and, and put his house in order. This is the kind of guy he is. He's organized. He's systematic. This is what I think happened. I think that because David got across the Jordan, time had lapsed. His plan, Hephthel's plan to capture the king right away, before he could reach that Transjordan, I'm going to show you a map in a minute, wasn't going to happen. He was afraid. He was afraid. His strategy was not going to come to pass. And therefore, when David would probably gain authority again, would probably come back into the kingdom, will probably and probably be king again, he, first thing he's going to do, where's Ahithophel, the traitor? Treason, dead. So what did he do? He accepted it and called, killed himself. Tragic. A man who was once the 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 trusted advisor and counselor to the king, King David. Now he's being brought out to his father's tomb. His great tragedy really is, is Ahithophel's failure to see the grace of God, the goodness of God that was extended to David for the purposes and plans of God to establish his kingdom, God's kingdom, through his servant David. Ahithophel's plan opposed the Lord. And therefore doomed. Now he's being carried off. You see this man who lifted up his hand against God's anointed king. Is a picture of what's going to happen. Listen to me. To all the enemies of the king of kings. And the kingdom of God. If you rise up against the kingdom of God. Sooner or later you'll be crushed. By the power of God. Second Thessalonians. When Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord, from the glory of his might when he comes again with his saints. And that, that's, what, that's what we see here. That, that's the, the picture of what, 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 what this is all about. Revelations 
lake of fire. And there's striking parallels between Ahithophel, the traitor, and Judas, the traitor. Right? They both betrayed the king. Ahithophel was, was part of David's kingdom. Ahithophel was with David he, when David established his kingdom and, and saw the kingdom grow and, 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 and expand. Judas was with Jesus for three years ministering with him, seeing the, 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 the kingdom expand. But when both of those men got a better offer, and then because of the offer in which they took, they saw what was about to happen to them, they hung themselves. But all those who opposed the kingdom of God, all those who opposed the king of the kingdom, we see God still moving. We see God in his providence bending and moving and determining to take the evil action of these men and protect his anointed one. Jesus, who is the gospel, came to his own. His own hated him. John tells us, but those who receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You know, we like to talk about the sovereignty of God. We want to talk about it not being very messy. But as I said, we're, we're messy. And God, let me tell you something. God is working out his purposes. Even in the midst of deception, even in the midst of brokenness, God is working out his purposes. And his purposes may seem hidden, but his sovereignty will always, always come to fruition. Even with this lie. And, and, I, and before we move on to this last point, I, I don't want to just cross over this suicide just for a moment if you're here this morning and you're hurting to the point of wanting to hurt yourself or you hear the cd you're watching online whatever call us man we want to journey with you we love you we love you we we want to help you we want to meet with you meet me with grab me after the service um send me a text an email um, sometimes it may be just working through some stuff, trusting in the Lord, relying upon and understanding his love for you. Uh, we don't want to see anything like that happen to anyone. So we're here for you. We love you. And if you're struggling with that, please give us a call. The calculated counsel, the cunning conduct, and finally the catered cuisine. David goes to Mahanaim and Absalom crossed the Jordan with all the men of Israel. And Absalom has set Amasa over the army Instead of Joab, Joab is with David. Amas was the son of, name, uh, of a man named Ithra, the Ishmaelite, Abigail, the daughter of Nahash. There's some names for you. Zeruah, Joab's mother. And, and verse 26, and Israel and Absalom encamped in the land of Gilead. Now, what's so interesting about that verse is he talks about Israel, like Israel's with Absalom. He's doing that on purpose to show us that David is behind the eight ball, man. David's in trouble right now. So, this was one that Ricky showed yesterday. So just you could see, there's Gilead, Jericho, Hebron down there, Berum, and then Manahim. So you could see David is going north and then east. And, and they're encountered, um, Absalom and his men have right by the Dead Sea there, and David is some time away up and over to the east. So that, that's what's going on. And it seems like, you know, Everything's going against David. And what's interesting about Mahanaim is that the name of that city was named by Jacob, who was there, running from Esau, <laughs> and ministered. The angels came and ministered to Jacob. You've got to be wondering if David's out there going, I need help. I, I, Jacob was here. God sent angels. I need help. What is God going to do for me? All of Israel. Verse 27. Final verse. When David came to Manahim, Shobi, the son, there's some more names for y'all, okay? 
I'll just go with the first name. Shobi, Mykar, and Barzali. I like to call them Barzini because that's from The Godfather. Uh, they're in the, in the realm, right? So there's three guys, interesting dudes. The Shab was, a, it was from Amnon, uh, the Ammonites. David already defeated them. Uh, they had disrespected David, remember, in chapter 10. It's just interesting because this guy's grandfather was the one that, di- that disrespected David and David conquered. And now the grandson is helping David. It's kind of strange. Providence of God. And then the other guy is, is Micar. He's, he's connected with Mephithosheth. And, you know, it just seems like. And then Brazili or, or Brazini. He's an elderly man with great wealth. So you got these three guys out of nowhere coming to David. It's just an unlikely crew. But again, the sovereignty of God, the providence of God, the work of God with David because he needs help. And I love verse 28. What do they bring? Beds, basins, earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans and lentils, honey and curds, sheep and cheese from the herd, steak and lobster for David and the people with him to eat. The people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. They bring food. They bring food to cook in. They bring utensils to cook in the food. And then they bring beds to take naps. After you cook the food, ate the food, you take a nap. Beds. I'm like, that, that's the Cade cuisine. If you're going to come to the house and feed me, like, bring a bed, I'll take a nap. You know, you let me know. All this in the middle of nowhere, right? Provisions for the anointed of God. Jesus driven into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, by evil himself. And we read that after the temptation, the angels came to Jesus and ministered to him. Do you see what's going on? Do you see what's going on? Keep your eyes focused upon the Lord. Watch the Lord work his providence. Watch him work in the court of Absalom, in the council of Ahithophel, in the council of Hushai. Watch him work even through Absalom's pride and selfishness. Watch him work through the cunning conduct of the the priest's son, this young lady, this, this hidden well. Watch him work in the, in the wilderness and David's getting all that he needs to prepare himself for the battle of his life that is about to take place. Don't miss the sovereignty of God. That's our God. And, and chapter 17, really, I'm going to wrap this up. God's kingdom is under assault, but it's also being protected. And, and there's comfort for you here this morning. There's comfort for me. Our ultimate security is not on these false promises of these false preachers who, want to, who tell you that everything's going to go well. There's, there's, you're immune to hardship. Or the government that says, we'll take care of you. We'll protect you. Let me tell you something. The kingdom of God is eternal. The king of the kingdom will establish his eternal kingdom. And that shall stand forever. That's where we take refuge in. And before we moralize the story and we say, you know what, David's such a good guy, Absalom is such a bum, let's be honest. David made some faults. David had some issues. David sinned. That's why we need a greater king. That's why we need a greater king. And not for anything, if we're honest, don't raise your hand. We are all Absaloms in some way, shape, or form at some time, right? How many of us can't say that we've rebelled against God? Are we trying to build our own kingdom? I publicly, did, publicly did things on a rooftop, <laughs> And brought shame, right? And yet God does not dole out what we deserve, but gives us grace. First Peter 3, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he may bring us to God. Listen, he's the righteous one, we're the unrighteous one. Romans 6, while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. God showed his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for you. Family, let me tell you, 
David will win. Spoiler alert. David's kingdom will be restored, not only in spite of the evil against them, but because of and through the evil against them. Just like the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ, has brought in his eternal kingdom. Acts 2, Jesus was delivered up by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, and yet you crucified and killed him. God's sovereignty, man's responsibility. Acts 4, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his anointed Christ, anointed one. For truly in the city we gathered together against Jesus, your holy servant, whom you've anointed. This is a prayer. You've anointed, Lord. He is the Christ. And Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and all the people of Israel to do whatever your hand, sovereign God, your hand and your plan has determined to take place. As the band comes up, everybody give me just one more second. Band, you can come up. We're running late. If you're here this morning and, and you've never trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord of your life, he was brutally crucified, died in your place as your substitute. He paid the debt we owe because of our sins, and Jesus offers forgiveness and reconciliation so you can be right with God. You repent, turn from sin, and trust and yield to the Lord Jesus Christ. Even in the midst of your mess, God has brought you here to this place at this time to hear the good news of the gospel. Jesus loves you. God loves you. Jesus died for you. Jesus rose for you. Jesus is calling you to turn from your sin and to trust to him, to walk with him, to love him, and to yield your life to him. But if you're a believer here and you're struggling this morning, in the circumstances you're in, trust God in it. Maybe it's a circumstance you put yourself in, I don't know. But trust his love, his grace, and his kindness toward you. It'll never change. Because the gospel tells you, It's not about you. It's about what Jesus has already done for you. His kingdom will never fail. His love will always endure. His sovereignty and good providence are always for you and not against you. He wields it in all things to preserve himself as your and my greatest treasure. Father, we see so much turmoil. We see so much... um, brokenness we see so much hurt and pain but it's stories like this that remind us that you are good your providence are good your sovereignty is good and lord even in the moment that we may experience pain and suffering does not compare to the weight of glory that will be in that day when jesus establishes his eternal kingdom all the tears will be wiped away pain will be gone sickness will be no more And Father, we know that you're working all things according to that plan and that purpose. So help us to yield to that. Help us to rest in your love, rest in your grace, even in the midst of of struggles and circumstances we may be in today. And Father, we pray as we sing now uh, this song that our hearts would rest in you. It is well with our soul. All our sins, past, present, and future, have been nailed to the cross. There's nothing that can harm us of any real significance because the one thing that can has been taken away our sin. Your wrath has been absorbed by your son, and we can have peace with you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.